The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Okay, we were talking about the uh, <clears throat> Dead Sea Scrolls, and I think I'm going to cut that short since you have, um, you know, you have the book that you've been, you have read, and that gives you all the information you need. Tell you the truth, does anybody know exactly where? <laughs> what's the last thing I said? Um, pardon me. Oh, so I had started to talk about the relationship between, yeah. Well, let, let me just say, take two or three minutes to, to um, talk about that, and then I'll, I'll take your questions. Um, as I think I, I got as far as telling you, because of the close uh, geographical proximity between the caves of Qumran, on the one hand, and the place where John the Baptist is said to have ministered, and also in view of the... Uh, um, the way in which John the Baptist um, uh, behaved and his use of Isaiah 40. People have argued that John the Baptist might have been an Essene, that is, he might have been part of the Qumran community. Um, no one can prove that. And uh, the, the fact is that um, there is a variety, there were a variety of groups, obviously, in Palestine at the time, uh, who may have had comparable characteristics. As you know from, from Vanderkam's book, uh, there's even dispute as to whether the people in Qumran belong to the Essenes. It depends on how you define the term Essenes and so on. So it's, it's, it's virtually impossible, not virtually, it's just downright impossible to demonstrate that John the Baptist or any one persons uh, specifically would have been part of that community, that he knew these people is a very, very likely. Um, and his use of the passage in Isaiah 40 about the voice crying in the wilderness, uh, as I think I mentioned, needs to be understood not as a sign of solidarity with these people, but if anything, as a polemic against them. Because for the Essenes, the use of that passage, the voice of one crying in the wilderness and so on, was a way of affirming their isolation, their separation from the rest of the people who were regarded as apostates. Whereas for John, uh, the verse becomes a, um, a springboard for evangelism, uh, to call people, uh, the nation, back to God. Uh, some of the early speculations that Jesus had anything to do with the Essenes, uh, no one of any stature pays any attention to that. You need to understand that um, you know, ever since these documents were discovered, there have been many, 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 many articles and books written by prominent scholars of all kinds of theological persuasions and lack thereof. And uh, the clear, clear consensus seems to be, is, not seems to be, is, that any parallels that you find between uh, the New Testament and the Qumran documents are not to be explained as a result of direct organic contact, if you will. They are to be explained either on the basis of a common culture or more specifically on the basis of a common tradition that is the Old Testament. So that if you see certain similarities in, in the phraseology or the emphases and so on between uh, something in the uh, Damascus document on the one hand and the Gospels on the other, uh, that similarity can be perfectly adequately understood as the result of two groups, both of whom are using the Old Testament as their basis. But there are other aspects in which the parallels between Qumran and the New Testament 
uh, are helpful uh, in, in quite, from quite a different angle. Uh, let me just give you one example of this. Um, back in the 1920s, 30s, and so on, where there was a great deal of emphasis on the supposed Hellenistic origin of the Gospel of John. And again, particularly someone like Rudolf Bultmann would argue that the language of the Gospel of John, for example, the, the contrast between darkness and light and a few other features of, of, uh, of the style of the Gospel of John, uh, that was used as one important piece of evidence that the Gospel of John would not have been written by uh, a disciple of Jesus, a Palestinian, but really uh, the, the document arose from somewhere in Asia Minor, presumably uh, within a Hellenistic religious context. And uh, the, some of these linguistic parallels were used as evidence of that. But now, after the discovery of the um, Dead Sea Scrolls, people have noticed, I mean, you can't help noticing, that some of these features in the Gospel of John that were supposed to be extraneous to a Jewish setting, many of these things are also found in, in, in Qumran, light and darkness, for example, and a few other details of expression. And so it is, becomes evident that you cannot use those kinds of uh, data to prove that the Gospel of John does not have some kind, was not written by someone of a Palestinian origin. Uh, it is one of the, the discoveries at Qumran, uh, that's one of the factors uh, leading to the so-called new look on the Gospel of John. Uh, somebody called it back in the late 50s, early 60s, a, a reassessment of the Gospel of John in the light of, of this new information. Well, there are a couple of other things that we could talk about, but we really need to move on to rabbinic literature. So let me just pause and see what questions you might have on this whole section on apocryphal and the pseudepigraphic literature, including Qumran. Any specific problems? Really, that, that is next spring, your Old Testament introduction course because it has to do with the Hebrew scriptures rather than the New Testament as such. Uh, and that's why I said you didn't need to worry with chapter 5, is it, of Vanderkam, because it deals with the Hebrew manuscripts. And it's, it's very difficult, you know, to answer the question unless we have spent a lot of time dealing with the, uh, the origin and transmission of the Hebrew scriptures. But uh, let me just say, I think I did mention a little bit about this before. The, the, the big significance is that you do have now documents which were produced, I mean copies that were produced a millennium prior to the earliest copies that we were familiar with, you know, 40 years ago. And that has, um, uh, you know, enormously affected the way in which scholars look at the transmission of the text. But it's very difficult to deal with details unless we have, you know, a whole class to talk about those things. But, but you'll uh, you probably get more than you, you really want um, in the Old Testament deduction course. Anything else? Yeah. Specifically, that the people in Qumran belong to the Essenes. I suspect that. Um, the majority of scholars uh, would probably say we think they're Essenes. Some of them uh, would say very strongly, I believe they are Essenes. I think most of them realize that there are problems, that there are some ambiguities in the data, particularly when you read what Josephus says and what Pliny says, and not everything fits in. And um, it's difficult to be sure, but I think maybe most scholars would say, look, the term Essene um, has a fairly broad designation. And uh, it is probably accurate to say the people in Qumran belong to the Essenes if you define that very broadly, but realizing also that there were many 
Essenes that would not have been part of the Qumran community. Um, now, there are other people who say, no, take Essenes in the, in the rather strict sense that someone like Pliny uh, describes them, and then you're talking about a different group uh, altogether, even though there are some similarities with, with Qumran. But, uh, of course, it's interesting that in the New Testament, um, there's no explicit reference to the Essenes or to Qumran as such. Um, but, yeah, it's part of the problem. And if you think about the way in which we ourselves use terms today, labeling groups and so on, is that uh, the meaning of those terms tends to change, you see, over from one generation to another. Uh, people who may use it in a negative sense, that affects the way in, the rest of, the way in which the rest of the people use it. And, and so we have the problem that Josephus is writing at the end of the first century, plenty at the beginning of the second century. New Testament is in the uh, um, you know, first part of the, of the first century. And you wonder sometimes whether the apparent discrepancies may not have something to do with the passage of time, but it's very difficult to say. Okay, let's move on then to rabbinic literature. And as you see, what I want to do is, first of all, give a summary of the historical development of, uh, of the rabbin rabbinic Judaism. And then we'll spend a little bit of time on, um, on trying to understand uh, what the Pharisees really were like, what they believed in. Uh, and hopefully that can shed some light <clears throat> on the way in which our Lord addresses the Pharisees. The um, historical, the brief historical survey that I'm going to give you uh, is really so that, we, so that we have some kind of framework to work from. This is going to be the traditional picture. In other words, um, if you talk to, a, to an Orthodox or maybe even some conservative uh, Jews, uh, and you ask them about the origins of Judaism, this is what they would say. Now, as we shall see, there is some debate about that. But I think it's better for us to begin with what has been in the past assumed uh, to some degree, and then we'll try to nuance things uh, later on. According to Jewish tradition, the antecedents of rabbinic Judaism go as far back as the time of Ezra and the scribal movement. That's the term soferim that I have on the outline. In Hebrew, sofer is a scribe. The soferim are the scribes. And um, it is, there would be no dispute about this, that the scribal movement did in fact originate about this time. Now by, by, by scribal movement, what I have in mind is uh, a group of professionals, if you will, people specifically educated for this purpose, who uh, were scribes not only in the sense that they spent a good deal of time copying the, uh, the text of the Bible. That was indeed part of what they did. But the term had a much fuller meaning because you see, a, a person who's professionally try, uh, professionally educated to uh, produce these very, very careful copies of the Bible, you're dealing with a highly educated person, you know, graduate school type, uh, who is not only skillful in terms of, you know, artistic or whatever, but who is very, very knowledgeable about the text. So that a scribe is not somebody who is simply involved in the, in the mechanics of copying, but in the process of understanding and interpreting what the text is saying. See, here's where Ezra uh, serves as something of a model because he is described as a ready scribe. As, uh, as someone, a skillful scribe. And, and what is he doing? Well, we're not told specifically that he was copying things. What we're told is that he read the law in public, 
and then he explained it. Now the explanation may have involved the translation of the Bible from Hebrew to Aramaic. And we'll talk about the languages uh, a little bit more tomorrow, but uh, the Jews had adopted Aramaic to a large degree, and it is possible that's part of what, what uh, his ex explaining involved. Maybe, maybe not. Um, in addition to this kind of work, the scribes also had a lot to do with the standardization of... Uh, of worship of the liturgy. Now that you don't have a temple, you have the development of the synagogues. There are readings of scripture and certain kinds of forms of worship that the scribes were also involved in um, developing. The idea is then that if you look at that period of Ezra and the scribes, uh, the scribal movement developing, especially in the intertestamental period that that becomes the origins, the historical origins of what later became rabbinic Judaism. And again, in terms of the traditional understanding, the Pharisees that we read about in the Gospels, in Josephus and so on, are also viewed as part of that whole stream. As I've already mentioned, there are some uh, there's some dispute nowadays about how much continuity you should see in that story. But uh, this is the way in which it has been understood before. Now, let's talk a little bit about how these scribes, or teachers of the law, if you will, went about in their work of understanding and interpreting the Bible. You'll notice in the, uh, the syllabus, <coughs> three terms, uh, three Hebrew terms, Midrash, Halakha and Haggadah, and uh, you may have already come across these terms. Uh, you will see them very frequently. Anytime you pick up a, a commentary or a Bible dictionary or something like that, uh, articles in journals, these are important terms, and, and you need to understand what's going on here. The term Midrash is a real slippery one because people use that term in a variety of senses. The, the most, I don't know, basic or you know, the simplest meaning, if you will, is that the term means, quite simply, interpretation. It's just a common Hebrew term from the, from the verb darash, to interpret, or to explain, that sort of thing. However, the term has taken on some more specialized meanings. For, for most people, it means not simply interpretation, but it means a distinctive kind of interpretation that the rabbis were involved in. And I'll give you some examples of that in a moment, but... Um, for, for many people, what happens is that Midrash takes on a negative nuance. You know, if, if somebody comes up with an interpretation of a passage, and the interpretation seems a little arbitrary, you say, ah, oh, that's just a Midrash. You know, Midrash is a, you know, not serious exegesis, but some kind of fanciful type of interpretation. That, that is quite unfair. Uh, undoubtedly, a much, a uh, good deal of, of Jewish interpretation to us seems that way, and some of it was. But it, it's not helpful to think of Midrash in that negative uh, sense. If there's anything distinctive about Midrash, is the emphasis on uh, the, what some people call the actualization of Scripture, actualizing it, that is, applying it, asking the question, what what is the significance of this for me today? And um, you can understand why that might be a pressing problem for the Jews after the end of the biblical period. They don't have a king. They don't have a temple. Uh, and you start reading the Bible and you ask yourself, all right, what, what does this mean? I want to obey God, but how do I do that? All kinds of new situations were coming up. 
and people would ask the question, well now, does this apply to this situation now or not? And that, you know, motivated the scribes, the teachers of the law, to come up with methods of interpreting the Bible that would help people deal with those questions. Now, the best example, I think, classic example, <clears throat> has to do with the Sabbath. <clears throat> what may or may not be done the Sabbath? The Jews always struggle with that. Christians still struggle with that today. And um, the scribes came up with, among other things, came up with this uh, exegetical technique. You go to the fourth commandment, and it says, you shall do no manner of work, or literally, all manner of work you shall not do. Now, the expression, all manner of work, kol uh, appears elsewhere in the Bible. And that's what the scribes would do. They don't they didn't need a concordance. They would just flip through their cards here and side their heads. Oh, of course. Remember at the end of the book of Exodus, after you have the description of the building of the tabernacle, uh, when there's a, a summary of the work that had been done, the same expression occurs. All manner of work was done. Aha, you see the same phrase in Exodus 20, as you have here at the end of the book. So what do you do? You go to the chapters preceding it, that is, where there is a description of the building of the tabernacle, and you start making a catalog of every kind of activity involved in the building of the tabernacle. And you come up with 39. Those 39 kinds of activity, See, are included in that phrase, all manner of work, so obviously that applies to the fourth commandment. And once you have those 39, you apply other techniques. Sometimes it's logical inference. Sometimes it's uh, seeing a term here that is used somewhere else, all kinds of um, methods like that. And you begin expanding and expanding and expanding. And uh, we do not always have uh, the arguments and the specific uh, uh, proofs for some of these interpretations. But uh, somehow in, in that whole process you come up with things like, you know, you sh in, on, the, um, on the Sabbath you should not walk uh, further than such and such a distance, and you do this and you don't do that, and so on. That's midrash. Now, um, let me say parenthetically, that later on, the term midrash was used in a somewhat different sense to refer to a, specific, to a specific type of literature, what today we might call a commentary on, on a book of the Bible. You can see the connection, but it really is a, a different meaning, and it usually is capitalized. Not always, but usually. Uh, these were documents that were not really written down until many centuries later, in the early Middle Ages, actually. Uh, but if you, if you re read somewhere, oh, the Midrash to Genesis, now you're talking about the commentary on Genesis. Now, they're not commentaries in the modern sense of the, of the term. Uh, often what they consist of are stories which are linked to the biblical text and are supposed to shed light on the meaning of the text or whatever. Uh, sometimes you do have uh, more clear-cut explanations, but, um, but you need to distinguish in your mind the term midrash in the sense of interpretation or a method of interpretation or Jewish inter from the more specialized sense of a body of writing, uh, which is like a commentary. And I'll have a little bit more to say about that uh, shortly. Now, what about these two other terms, halakha and haggadah? Um, the term halakha, halakha, comes from a Hebrew verb, halakh, which means to walk. And uh, it is a way of, of describing conduct. Halakha has to do uh, not just with conduct in some general sense, but specifically with legal questions that regulate the life of the people. Legal questions that regulate Jewish uh, society. Whereas Haggadah, to be very um, simple about this, 
is everything else. You know, it may be proverbs, it may be stories, it may be folklore. All that kind of thing is called Haggadah. These are, um, most of the time when people use these terms, it's a way of, of describing what you might call literary genre. Um, that is the kind of writing, kind of material. If it has to do specifically with the law, with legal requirements, with uh, you know, the specific conduct of the people, that sort of thing. That's halakhic stuff. If it's something else, it's haggadic stuff. And um, again, in, the, in, in Jewish tradition, these terms are kind of important because it's a standard way of, the, of um, referring to two different kinds of material. And again, we'll come back to that, but uh, at this point you need to realize that it is during this period, just before the New Testament, that, that these ways of thinking, these kinds of, of uh, material were developed primarily by word of mouth, not in writing yet, but by word of mouth. You noticed in the outline, uh, there are these three terms, the Zugot, the Tanaim, the Amoraim. Those are terms used to describe the rabbis during three distinct chronological periods. The term zugot means pairs, as in P-A-I-R-S, pairs. Why? Because in the period listed there from about the year 180 BC to about the time of Jesus, roughly, the primary rabbis consisted of succeeding generations of, of pairs. In other words, uh, now again, there's some debate as to precisely what or what position these people held, but you might say, uh, to be very simplistic about this, like the president and the vice president of the uh, of the. Uh, Great Assembly, or the or not the synagogue, but uh, uh, the uh, the Council of Elders, or something like that. Again, there's some uncertainty about um, the uh, the organization of these groups uh, at this time. But um, you see, you have several generations of rabbinic leaders, if you will. Maybe I shouldn't use the term rabbinic yet here, but scribal leaders, teachers of the law. Uh, and you would have a pair of, of these leaders, sometimes, possibly, in fact, we, we know that this was a fact in some cases, uh, representing different viewpoints. There were several of these. The last group, the last pair, is the best known. Uh, you have here Hillel and Shammai, Hillel and Shammai. Uh, they're here in the outline. <clears throat> and um, these two people um, were the uh, recognized leaders, if you will, in the first part of the first century. According to tradition, uh, the reputation they had was that Hillel was liberal, Shammai was very conservative. And there's a measure of truth in that, but, but you need to be careful uh, not to um, misunderstand what's going on. Uh, one of the best examples, I don't know if it's the best example, but it's most frequently mentioned, has to do with the question of the basis for divorce. And according to the tradition, uh, Shammai was very strict about that. He would only allow divorce in the case of sexual immorality. And part of the problem, see, this is a problem of interpretation because in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, there is a phrase there used, davar, uh, uh, forget the, but anyway, a matter of uncleanliness or something like that. And, and that was the basis uh, given uh, for divorce. And so the question is, what, 
what is covered by that, Shammai was very strict, not only sexual immorality. Hillel's viewpoint was, she burns your toast in the morning, that's enough reason to uh, uh, divorce her. Now, um, the, the problem there is, you see, that gives, I think, quite the wrong picture of what Hillel was like or what motivated him. There's every reason to believe that Hillel was motivated by concern, actually, over the status of the women. That sometimes uh, strict uh, divorce regulations affected women in a very negative way because they didn't have the same rights and so on. And um, for, for him, probably it was a way of liberating women, uh, you know, at least for certain purposes. I'm not saying he's right or wrong. I'm saying that you, you mustn't think that Hillel had, um, you know, he was against women. It's exactly the, 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 the contrary. He was liberal in the sense that he tried to interpret the Bible in the most generous way uh, possible, you see. And we'll see a couple more examples of that as we move on. But there, there are many little stories about them. Um, we cannot always, in fact, we can hardly ever be sure whether these things are true. Um, there's the one story of, um, of a man who came to Shammai. I think he was a, um, a Gentile who was considering converting. And he comes to Shammai and he says to Shammai, okay, now um, tell me in one sentence you know, what Judaism is all about. And Shammai chased him out with a cane, you know, what stupidity and lack of respect to think that uh, we could do that. So he ran to Hillel, and uh, that's when Hillel uh, gave him the, uh, uh, well, there are variations on the stories here, but, um, uh, you know, don't do unto others as you don't want them to do unto you, the negative golden rule, uh, and other comparable uh, sayings like that. So he was always much more, you know, willing to, to talk to people and so on. Then we come to a really crucial period, and I say crucial because this is the period for which we do have clear historical literary evidence. From about the year 30, but more specifically after the destruction of Jerusalem, to the, um, about the year 200, roughly, maybe after that, the period of the Tanaim. Uh, might as well know this. <clears throat> There's a Hebrew verb, Shana, which means to repeat. And um, it became the way in which you talked about learning. You know, somebody who learns is someone who repeats because in that culture, as still today in some cultures, to learn means that you memorize and you repeat something until you memorize it. Uh, Hebrew and Aramaic are very closely related languages and there are certain phonological correspondences. Sometimes where the Hebrew has a shin, this sh sound, Aramaic has a T sound. Um, so... Actually, this is usually with two ends, but let's not worry about those details. Uh, Tana is the Aramaic uh, equivalent to Hebrew Shana. And that's where the term Tanaim comes from. The repeaters, the sense of the learners, or even the ones who know a lot, something like that. And uh, you'll see in a moment why I bothered giving you this information. It is a way of referring to this crucial period in the development of rabbinic Judaism where you have some very, very important uh, rabbis, teachers of the law, whose teaching became later codified as, as the heart of Judaism. That's what's going on here. One that you know about, because he's mentioned in the book of Acts, is Gamaliel. Um, Paul apparently 
learned from Gamaliel, for one thing. He sat at his teaching. And uh, Gamaliel is the one who is mentioned in, in the early chapters of Acts, chapter 5 specifically, as saying um, to his um, buddies, uh, you better not uh, do anything harsh with these Christians, Peter and, uh, and John specifically, because um, if, um, if they're not doing what's right, they'll disappear. But if they come from God, you're going to get into trouble. Uh, Gamaliel was a fairly, again, liberal in the sense of generous type person, and, and um, he seemed to even encourage people to learn about, uh, learn from Gentile books, you know, Greek uh, philosophy and so on, to some degree anyway. He was enlightened, whatever. Uh, another important person that I mentioned earlier is Yohanan ben Zakkai. Remember, he's the fellow who fled Jerusalem just before its destruction and who founded a school in uh, Jamnia. Very, very important individual. He lived until the end of the first century. And uh, he is uh, credited largely with saving a Phariseeism or Rabbinic Judaism after the destruction of Jerusalem because of his uh, leadership and teaching and so on. The next individual, Akiba, and, and you find that name spelled in several ways, sometimes with a K instead of a Q, uh, sometimes with a V instead of a B because in modern Hebrew you would just say Akiva. But um, he's very, very famous. He lived... Um, the first part of the second century. He is um, supposed to have supported um, Bar Kokhba in his revolt in 132. Undoubtedly, Bar Kokhba to um, be able to lead a revolt would have to have some kind of support from religious, religious leaders and it appears that Akiba uh, was the one who gave him support, and he was you know, very, very highly regarded, although he was also a controversial figure. One of the reasons he was controversial is that he had a very, very unusual, very strict, very, um, what shall I call it? Anyway, his method of interpretation was a little strange. He put a lot of emphasis on little details, all kinds of little details in the Hebrew text, and tried to see meaning in, in lots of things that are relatively trivial, you know, just necessary uh, parts of the language, uh, but he would try to see something important in every detail. And he was part of a particular tradition within Judaism, uh, an interpretive tradition that uh, was very influential. But there were other rabbis who opposed his methods of interpretation as well. Finally, uh, I mean, I have chosen only four here, but uh, there were quite a few of them, you, you understand. But uh, the last one that I want to mention is Judah, also known as Judah the Prince. He lived toward the end of this period, about the year 200 or so. And the reason he's important, the main reason he's important, is that he is credited with finally codifying all of this teaching that had been going on for centuries and actually writing it down. Writing what down? Well, writing what is known as the oral law, the oral law. In Judaism, the law of God is in two forms, the written Torah and the oral Torah. The, uh, the rabbis would speak about HaTorah Shebealpeh, that is the, the, the law that is in the mouth. It is an oral, orally transmitted body of teaching. According to one of the legends, one of the stories, this oral law actually goes as far back as Moses. The point is that the Bible says that God spoke to Moses on the mountain. He didn't only write down the law, but he also communicated other kinds of information, 
which Moses passed down by word of mouth and then over the generations. Uh, that, of course, you know, has no basis in fact, but it, was, it, it does help you to understand why in traditional Judaism, the oral law is really just as important as the written law, in a sense. It is divine. Uh, it's of a different character. Um, because the oral law, uh, to a large extent, consists of debates among the rabbis. Rabbi such said and said, uh, rabbi such said such and such. This other rabbi said this other thing. And, and the house of Hillel prevailed, or something like that. So that there is debate within the oral law, and yet it was considered to be of divine origin in some way. And in practice, it ended up being more important than the written Torah. Why? Because whenever you come across a law, you're going to have to figure out what does this mean? How do I, how, how do I apply it? And uh, it gets very difficult sometimes. So you go to the oral law. So that in practice, it was this tradition, the tradition of the elders, as both Josephus and the New Testament describe it, that becomes the standard of conduct for people. In a similar way as in, say, in, in the Christian church over the uh, Middle Ages in the Roman Catholic Church, the tradition of the, you know, the patristic literature and then the tradition of the church uh, in, in, in the passing of time becomes, became more and more significant. And people were not even allowed to read the Bible because they couldn't understand it. You just listen to the church and the church will tell you, see. Well, there's a parallel between what was going on in the development of, of Judaism and what happened in, in the Middle Ages with uh, the Christian church. But here's the problem. The oral law, uh, all of these you know, if, if you go back to what I said earlier, the midrash on, on the Sabbath and what does the Sabbath mean and when do you keep it, when don't you keep it, and so on, and then you start adding to that and adding to that and adding to that, and this was not allowed to be written down. This was the oral law. And uh, rabbi after rabbi would memorize this stuff. And every generation, you know, it's like my reading list in the NTI syllabus. It just keeps growing, you see. And I don't drop stuff. Uh, but um, this was becoming a problem. As somebody has put it, every time a rabbi died, it was like you were burning an encyclopedia. And so there was a recognition of the need to standardize all of this material and, and to write it down. And, and there were a couple of attempts at this, but the one that finally won out was this one by Judah, uh, the, Judah the prince, about the year 200. And when, when all this material was finally put down in writing, it was known as the Mishnah, the Mishnah. <clears throat> and you see the connection now with Shana and Tanaim. The Mishnah embodies all of this material that had been developed by the Tanaim. So if you ever see in, uh, in the commentaries and so on, a reference to Tanaitic literature. Tanaitic literature means primarily the Mishnah, but also some other documents that, that uh, can be uh, seen to originate, originate in this period of the Tanaim. Now the Mishnah, um, you can go to the library, the reference uh, section, if you will. There's maybe a copy in the bookstore as well. Uh, can all be put in one volume. There's six tractates dealing with all kinds of issues um, that the law. It, it's difficult to read, even in translation. Now, if you compare the Hebrew of the Mishnah with the English translation, there are times where the Hebrew, there's a sentence of 12 words, let's say. You look at the English, and the sentence is 35 words because the Mishnah has a very compressed language. You see, it was meant to be memorized. There's a, there are a lot of, um, you know, like shorthand. Even with a sentence that's 35 words long, you're still not sure what it says sometimes. 
Uh, it's, it's really complicated, very technical sometimes. Uh, and all of this is, by the way, almost all of it is halakhic in nature. You see, you're dealing with legal issues. And uh, the Mishnah, you need to understand, is at the very heart of rabbinic Judaism. That's, that's the foundation, just about. Question? Well, any time, uh, no, no, forget the commentaries right now. I'm just using the term midrash. Midrash at this point simply in the sense of interpretation. Any time, in a sense, you see, when the rabbis begin to discuss a legal issue, they are involved in midrash, in interpretation. Now, we come to the next period. Yeah. Basically, yes. Now, the Mishnah is there, right? But now when we come to the next period, the period of the Amoraim, from the 3rd to the 6th or 7th centuries, now these people spend all their time, or most of it, discussing what the Mishnah means and further debating the problems dealt with in the Mishnah. And um, the, the discussions of the Amoraim which you could think of as almost a, a commentary on the Mishnah, that is known as the Gemara, as you have it there in the, uh, in the uh, outline, the Gemara. The Gemara is the, the term used to describe the material produced by the Amoraim, which consists largely of an explanation of the Mishnah and a further expansion, further discussion of the issues dealt with in the Mishnah. Now, see that the next term here is Palestinian and the Babylonian, the Palestinian and Babylonian Talmuds. What is the Talmud? The Talmud is basically, well, that's a treasure house of Judaism. If you go to a library, you will find, well, you have to go up to, well, I think they have a reference uh, section. Now, there are these big volumes, quite a few of them. That is the treasure store of Judaism. You know, Judaism consists of the Bible, that's the written Torah. Then the Mishnah, which is the oral Torah. And then all this stuff that has grown around the Mishnah. And if you open a page of the Talmud, it's a rather complicated looking page. And you will find that about here in the middle, there are a few lines. In, in relatively large Hebrew letters, that's a little passage from the Mishnah. Then you have all kinds of columns here with smaller type, and that's the Gemara. That, that's a discussion by the scribes, the Amoraim, and so on, based on this material. Further arguments, further considerations, expansions, and this and, and the other. However, there is other stuff on the page. There is a section here with something else. It may be the comments of, uh, uh, of some uh, uh, rabbi in the Middle Ages, or it may be uh, stories here, other information there. It, it's quite a complicated-looking page. And um, you, you should think of the Talmud primarily as the Mishnah plus the Gemara, but also with other added stuff, uh, not all of which is halakhic in nature, not all of which is, it includes lots of stories, a lot of folklore, so that there's a lot of Haggadah in the Talmud as well as Halakha. Within Judaism, there are other things that have been produced for the edification of, uh, of the people, um, 
you know, the Seder readings in connection with Passover. Uh, you, you may have selections from the Talmud with little stories that help to preserve, you know, the memory of, of what Judaism is all about. But no, your, your common Jew doesn't sit down to read the Talmud every day. It's a, um, you need to spend, you know, 10 or 15 years of study before you think that you can do something with it. It's very, very complicated, yeah. You're not going to find a really carefully worked out theory of that. And as a matter of fact, they are strongly contradictory strands within the oral law. Um, how, you know, they put those two things together beats me. And I don't think, I, I have never seen anything where a rabbi or, or anybody tries to deal with that question in detail and give an explanation, how is it possible that this is, you know, divine revelation in more or less in parallel with the Torah, with the written Torah. Um, but the thing is that particularly when you come up with a decision, you see, there's, this is a decision that you, you have to abide by. But even today, you see, much of what goes on uh, among particularly Orthodox Jews, other Jews don't really worry about this stuff at all, but Orthodox Jews, much of their effort is just trying to figure out what all this means. And, and, and uh, much of it is, quote, unquote, irrelevant. You know, just how do you prepare the sacrifice? Nobody's offering sacrifices, but you spend a lot of time on, on trying to uh, understand what is the right way of doing it, you see. Yeah. It's primarily the Pentateuch, but when I'm talking here about the written law, I'm, I'm including the whole Bible. Yeah. Let me just say, um, when people speak about the Talmud, what they normally have in mind is the Babylonian Talmud. Uh, in Babylon, a lot of this, most of this work was going on, and it is the Babylonian Talmud that is viewed as the, uh, the official, you see, Jewish uh, material. But in Palestine, there were a lot of rabbis also uh, doing the same sort of thing. Uh, the Palestinian Talmud is analogous to the Babylonian Talmud. It's not complete. It's not as uh, fine-tuned as the Babylonian Talmud, uh, but in some respects, it's more useful for a New Testament student because uh, both in terms of the language and the things that they deal with, it may have uh, more direct um, connection to some of the questions we have with regard to Jewish practices in Palestine. 